You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Have you noticed we've had two days of sunshine? You know, we had, I think I'm right in saying this, uh, I heard on the news, we had record rainfall. I mean, it was raining so much, I thought maybe we'd have to build an ark or something, you know. But uh, just a little bit of trivia here. Does anybody know what Noah's wife's name was? Joan, Joan of Arc. (laughs) Now, hey, it can't be any worse than the jokes we heard last week, can it? (laughs) All right. But um, welcome, everyone, to this uh, uh, Sunday, this beautiful Sunday morning. Now, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and if you have your Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 7. If you're using a pew Bible, page 864, we're going to look at the text in just a minute. But the title of our series that we've been going through is The Gospel for Everyone. And uh, nowhere is it more clearly seen that the Gospel truly is for everyone than in the passage we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the lives of two people. One named Simon, a Pharisee, a religious leader. The other, an unnamed woman who was probably a prostitute, who was notoriously known as a sinful woman. And I believe she represents all the repentant sinners who find a friend in Jesus. Now before we start, maybe a little background information might be helpful. The scene is the courtyard of Simon the Pharisee's house. And in those days, the houses of the wealthy were built around an open courtyard. And it was the custom when a rabbi was invited to eat a meal there, all kinds of people would come in. They were free to come in and listen to the rabbi. Now keep this in mind because this is how the woman in our story was able to come into Simon's house and approach Jesus. And also keep this in mind. In those days when they ate a meal, they didn't sit at the table like we do they reclined. They would lay on low couches resting on an elbow with their feet stretched out behind them and their sandals off. So with that background, let's turn to, again, Luke chapter 7. And would you stand with me as we read God's Word? But first, let's pray. Father, I thank you for each person here this morning. We believe that this is your word, your inspired word. And I ask, Father, that you would open the scriptures to us this morning, that you would speak to each person here. And, oh, Lord, you would show us how we can apply what you show us this morning to our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, 
he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. This is God's word. You can be seated. Now, to begin with, I want you to notice the difference between Simon and this woman. Simon had invited Jesus to his house, but didn't offer Jesus even the most basic common courtesies that a guest would receive in those days. Simon gave Jesus no water to wash off his dusty feet, but the woman washed his feet with her tears. Simon gave Jesus no towel. The woman wiped his feet with her hair. Simon didn't give Jesus the customary kiss on the cheek. The woman hadn't stopped kissing Jesus' feet since the time he had arrived. Simon gave no customary oil to anoint his head that was given to his other guest. The woman lavishly anointed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. Simon didn't even show Jesus the most basic forms of hospitality for that day. It seems he had just about as much contempt for Jesus as he did for this woman. Now, what can we learn from these two? What can we learn from Simon? What can we learn from this woman? And of course, what can we learn from Jesus this morning that we can apply to our lives? First, let's look at Simon. Now, Simon was a Pharisee. He was a Jewish religious leader. Now, as a Pharisee, he would have fasted twice a week. He would have tithed a tenth of all of his income. He would have had large portions of Scripture memorized. If he was at the university today, he would have been a professor in the, in, in, in the school of theology. He would had his doctorate degree in theology. He had religion. He had lots of religion. But he had very little love for Jesus. You know, lots of people have religion. They, they may go to church. They may have some kind of religious background. But deep in their heart, they don't have fa daily fellowship with Christ. There's no personal relationship with Christ. There's no daily Bible reading and prayer, and there's no constant dependence upon the Holy Spirit. You know, I believe that religion is one of the greatest obstacles that keep people from receiving Christ because they're trusting in their religious works, trusting in their religion to save them rather than trusting in Christ and in Him alone. Simon, with all of his religion, with 
all of his study of the scripture failed to understand Jesus' mission. He just didn't get it. He failed to see the real reason for the promised Messiah. You ever talk to someone and you're thinking, they just don't get it. They're missing the whole point. You know, it reminds me of a guy who was pulled over by a police officer. And he had two penguins in the back seat. And uh, the officer pulled him over and he said, hey, don't you know that's an endangered species? You need to take those penguins to the zoo. So the man said, well, okay, he agreed. Well, the next day, the police officer saw the man again. He was driving around with the two penguins. But this time, they had sunglasses on, wearing Hawaiian shirts. And the police officer pulled him over again. He said, hey, didn't I tell you yesterday to take those two penguins to the zoo? And the man said, I did. But today, I'm taking them to the beach. You know, talk about missing the point. He just didn't get it. But neither did Simon. Here was Jesus doing all these miracles, healing the sick and the crippled, opening the eyes of the blind, casting demons out of people, raising the dead, teaching with authority as no man ever taught. Here was the long-promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. Here was the Son of the God. Here was God in the flesh, and Simon couldn't see it. He couldn't see it, and neither could most of the other Pharisees. Why? Why couldn't they see it? This sinful woman could see it. We know the woman who met Jesus at the well in John chapter 4 who was living in sin, we know she believed Jesus was the Messiah. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter, a common fisherman, said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But the Pharisees couldn't see it, even with all their religion and knowledge of the Scriptures. Why? Why couldn't they see it? Well, I believe one of the main reasons why was because of their pride. Simon was so proud. He could see the woman's sin, but he couldn't see his own. Pride and self-righteousness blinds us to the things of God. In his pride, Simon couldn't see that Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost. In his pride, he couldn't see that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn sinners, but he came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like this woman, and sinners like Simon, and sinners like you and me. You know, the Pharisees brought three charges against Jesus. The first charge they brought against Jesus is that he claimed to be the Son of God. And they said that was blasphemy because they said, you, a mere man, you make yourself out to be God. The second charge they brought against Jesus is that he healed people on the Sabbath, thus in their eyes breaking the Sabbath because he was working on the Sabbath. And you're not going to believe the third charge they brought against him. The third charge they brought against Jesus was that he was a friend of sinners. Yes, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus loves sinful people. And the only people who bristle at the thought of Jesus coming into the world to save sinners are those who are self-righteous and don't think that they need saving. In Luke 18, Jesus told a parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And Luke tells us why Jesus gave the parable. 
He gave it for those who were confident of their own righteousness and they looked down on everyone else. So Jesus told this parable. He said two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, that I'm not like robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over there. For I fast, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Why? Pride. Pride. You know, did you know it was the Pharisees who first invented the selfie? They were the first ones. They were so proud. And Jesus expressed himself clearly by what he said next. He said, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this parable came true with Simon and this sinful woman. She went home forgiven, and Simon didn't. Pride is one of the greatest sins of all. Pride keeps us from God. It keeps us from seeking God. Did you know that the Bible tells us that God hates pride? He hates it. He hates pride. Because in almost every instance in the Bible, as well as in life, pride is associated with failure, not success. Pride destroys marriages. Pride destroys homes. Pride destroys friendships. Because pride, what it is, is that we're just too proud to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Pride is one of the biggest obstacles that keep people from receiving Christ. You know, no one will ever enter the kingdom of heaven proudly. We must come humbly to Christ. And do you know what the greatest act of humility in the history of the entire universe was? It was when Jesus Christ stooped down and came to this earth as a man and went to a cross to die for your sins and mine. That was the greatest act of humility this world has ever seen and before any person can get to heaven they must kneel at the foot of the cross and say Jesus I'm a sinner but I believe you're the Savior please forgive my sins please save me no one can come to the kingdom of God with pride in their heart you know at all at times we've all been proud it's a sin we all struggle with but if we want to experience God's grace we must be humble if we want to experience his mercy and his forgiveness, we must humble ourselves. We're told in James 4, 6 that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace, he gives favor to the humble. In his self-righteous pride, Simon couldn't conceive why, if Jesus was a man from God, if he was a prophet, why he'd ever allow a woman like this to even touch him, in his eyes even making him unclean. Why would he ever associate with a sinner like her? Again, what Simon failed to see was his own sin, the seriousness of his, of his own sin. So Jesus told him a simple story about two men who owed a debt to a moneylender. One owed a huge amount, the other a much smaller amount. But the point was this. 
neither one could repay the debt. This last spring, I was talking to a couple students at Columbus State, and they told me they thought they had a pretty good chance, a pretty good shot at getting into heaven because they hadn't sinned all that much. Well, after sharing the gospel with them and talking with them for a while, they, they finally admitted, they said, well, yes, we are sinners. And with talking with them further, they even admitted, they said, you know, yeah, we do. We, we mess up every day. We either think something we shouldn't think, we look at something we shouldn't look at, say something we shouldn't say, or do something we shouldn't do. And they admitted that, yes, they, they sin almost every day. And I said to him, I said, okay, well, imagine if God allows you to live to be my age. How much sin would that be? And they looked at me and did a quick mental calculation, and they said, wow. <laughs> That'd be a lot of sin. And feeling just a bit old, I said, yeah, that'd be a mountain of sin, wouldn't it? But you see, the truth is, whether we have a mountain of sin or just a molehill, it's a debt we can't pay. But thank God Jesus paid our sin debt on the cross. And before he bowed his head and died, he said, it is finished. And that word is teteleste. And it means paid in full. Jesus paid the debt that we could never pay. Now, we've looked at Simon. What about this woman? What do we learn from her? As I said earlier, she's a picture of all the repentant sinners who have found a friend in Jesus. How many of you remember that old hymn? What a friend we have in Jesus. Well, there's some other old people out here too, I see. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs he bears. Now, I personally believe that she had met Jesus earlier. Perhaps she had seen him do a miracle. Thousands witnessed his miracles. Perhaps she had a chance to listen to him speak or maybe even speak to him herself. And she had come to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah, just like the sinful woman Jesus had met at the well in John chapter 4. At any rate, she believed Jesus could and would forgive her sin. And she came humbly in true repentance and to trust Jesus and Him alone as Savior and to show her gratitude and love. She came uninvited, but she came with confidence. Not in herself, but confidence in Jesus. Now, how could she be so confident? Maybe it was because Jesus had developed quite the reputation. You see, right here in Luke 7.34, People were calling Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, people who felt unloved by everybody else felt loved by Jesus. Let me repeat that. People who felt unloved by everybody else felt loved by Jesus. And I believe this. The more those who are not followers of Christ are loved by us who follow Christ, the more open they'll be to following Christ, the more open they'll be to receiving Christ. And the question for us this morning is this, are non-believers attracted to us because of the way we love them? Are non-believers attracted to us because of the way we respect them and the way we treat them? Do non-believers feel loved by us? If Jesus was a friend of sinners, shouldn't we be too? Now, you know, there's never been a time when people are more in need of a friend than, the, than today. 
Every generation needs the gospel, but none more than this current generation. You know, we've heard a lot about the baby boomers and the millennials and Gen Y and Gen X. I can't keep it all straight. And, but now there's Gen Z. And this emerging generation, Gen Z, be, born between the late 1990s and 2010, this is a generation of young people dealing with severe depression. They're immersed in media, and they have a high rate of mental health issues. And according to a recent study, they're described as the loneliest generation ever. Lonely. I believe they're lonely for God because they were raised without God. Think of it. We've never been more connected because of our phones, but at the same time disconnected. And it's no coincidence that the suicide rate in this generation has dramatically risen. Sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? But yet what a great opportunity to share the gospel, to introduce them to the best friend they could ever have. Because only Jesus can fill the emptiness and the loneliness in their soul and in their heart. Now, to be a friend of sinners doesn't mean we excuse sin. Jesus said to Simon that this woman's sins were many. He told the woman at the well, he said, you've had five husbands, and oh, by the way, the man you have now, he's not your husband. Ouch. To the man at the pool of Bethesda, who had been an invalid for 38 years after Jesus healed him, he told him, he said, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What could be worse than being an invalid for 38 years? I believe Jesus was telling that man something about judgment and something about hell. Judgment, hell, that's worse. To the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, but go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus never excused sin, but he didn't come to condemn people. You see, John 3, 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us. And he's our example when it comes to loving unbelievers. Now think of this woman. No doubt men used her and abused her. Women hated her. She was known as the sinful woman. She was a lonely woman. But she came to Jesus, the friend of sinners. She came to Jesus as so many did. Thousands came to Jesus, but not for the same reason as most. She didn't come for the same reason as most did. Many came to Jesus to be healed, and I would have too. But this woman didn't come to be healed. Many came to Jesus because he fed them. They came for a free meal. Hey, I would have too. If there's free food, I'd be first in line, ask my wife. But she didn't come to be fed. She came to be forgiven. That's the greatest need we have. And that's why Jesus went to the cross and shed his blood, because you see, the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. In other words, if Jesus had not gone to that cross and shed his blood, there'd be no way for you and I to be forgiven. No way for us to have a relationship with God. No way for us to ever go to heaven. And after Jesus said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and died, 
you know, there were still many people who needed to be healed. And there were still many hungry people who needed food. But Jesus said, it's finished. The work he came to do was finished. Yes, he healed people and he fed people and he did that out of compassion and so should we. But the real reason he came was to go to the cross because there he was dealing with eternity. During an evangelism conference, Billy Graham once said this. He said, we Christians should do what we can to help the poor, to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to see that justice is done. But we must never forget that how or when a man dies is less important than where he'll spend eternity. He said, if we feed all the hungry and care for all the poor and care for all the sick and yet fail to explain God's way of salvation to them, we have not reached their greatest and deepest need. Their deepest need is spiritual. And yes, we should do all these things in Jesus' name. And he even promised a reward if we even give a cup of cold water in his name. But we must also proclaim the gospel. The two go hand in hand because I tell you, it won't do them much good to drink the cold water if they die and go to hell. So we must do both. Now Jesus told this woman, your sins are forgiven. He gave her the words that she so longed to hear. Forgiven. It's one of the most beautiful words in the human vocabulary. When I was a school teacher, I was a public school teacher, Dale Schuler and myself and another teacher, we did a, a big outreach called God Talk to the students. And through the years, God brought hundreds and hundreds of students to God Talk. And uh, we'd open up the gym and throw out the basketballs and bring out ping pong tables. We'd play games and stuff like that, bring in some pizza and some pop. And uh, then... I would give a short gospel message. And afterwards, we'd hand out response cards. And I remember going through those cards. And, and so many times, what well, one of the questions on the card was, what did you enjoy most tonight? And so many times, I remember reading the students, they would respond and say, what I enjoyed most tonight was knowing that I'm forgiven. Knowing that I'm forgiven. Now, these are teenagers in a public school. I mean, there was basketball there, pizza, pop. There was girls there and guys there. And yet so many times, what did I enjoy most tonight? Knowing that I'm forgiven. God's forgiveness. In one bold stroke, God's forgiveness wipes out the past and allows us to start all over again. You ever sometimes just want to be able to start all over again? We can always start over again with Jesus Christ. Because you see, God's forgiveness is that he, he not only forgives, He forgets our sin. Hebrews 8, 12 says, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. God chooses to forget our sin when we come to Christ. Isn't that something? So who are we to remember those sins? If God says, I'm going to forget them. Psalm 103.12 says, He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's a long ways. 
Because of the cross, this is God's forgiveness. And only when we come to Jesus, as this woman did, with deep remorse and sorrow and with confession and repentance can we find forgiveness. But you know, as Christians, we still need forgiveness. Now, our sins are covered by the blood of Christ. But let me ask you this. Are there sins that you need to confess? Sins in your life that you need to repent of and turn away? You know, we have this wonderful promise in 1 John 1, 9 that it says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Think of it. If we come to Him and confess our sins, God says, I will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, when Jesus told her, your sins are forgiven, and the other guests who were there began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? You know, it reminds us of the time when a paralytic was brought to Jesus back in John chapter, or actually chapter 5, Luke chapter 5. And remember his friends made an opening in the roof and they lowered him right down in front of Jesus because there were so many people in the house they couldn't get their friend in to see Jesus. So they dug an opening in the roof and they lowered him down. And everyone was waiting to see a miracle. Everyone's thinking, let's see if Jesus can heal this guy. But do you remember what Jesus did? He didn't heal him right away. He healed him later. But that's not the first thing he did. The Bible says when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. He called him friend. He said, your sins are forgiven. That was the first thing he did. I can hear all the people there, uh, Jesus, this guy came to be healed. You know, Jesus, he, he, he wants to walk. But Jesus came to save sinners. That was his first priority. He came to meet our greatest need, and our greatest need is to be forgiven. And of course, the Pharisees who were there, they began to mutter and began thinking among themselves, who is this guy who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what? They were right. Only God can forgive sin. But that's who Jesus claimed to be. He claimed to be God in the flesh. He told his disciples, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. He said, before Abraham was born, I am. I am in eternal existence. I am was a title for God. He was basically saying, I am God. He was God in the flesh. And he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Think of the authority that we've seen as we've gone through this gospel of, Jude, of Luke. He had authority over every sickness and disease. He had authority over demons, he cast them out. He had authority over death, he raised people from the dead. And as we're going to see in the next chapter, he had authority over nature. Do you remember the time he was in a, out in a boat with his disciples and a storm came up and the lightning flashed, the thunder roared and the wind was blowing and the sea was raging and the disciples were afraid and they said, Lord, we're going to drown. And Jesus stood up in the boat and he said, peace be still. And the wind stopped blowing and the sea became completely calm and the disciples looked at one another and they said, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Nature obeyed him. 
because he's the God of nature, the one who created nature. And yes, he had authority to forgive sin. And he proved it when he healed that paralytic. And he proved his deity by the miracles he did, the prophecies he fulfilled, and his resurrection from the dead. You know, there's so many names and titles for Jesus. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah. He's the Word of God. He's the Good Shepherd. He's the Bread of Life, the Alpha and the Omega, the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. Someday He'll come back and set up His kingdom. He'll reign on this earth. And I believe that could be much sooner than we might think. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and one day every knee will bow to Him and every tongue confess that He is Lord. But of all the titles given to Jesus, the one that's most dearest to me is Savior. He's our Savior. He told this woman, your sins are forgiven, but then He told her something else. He said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I like that word saved. I don't think we use it enough today, but it's a word that's used all throughout Scripture. It's a word that's used all throughout this Gospel of Luke. It's a good word. It's a biblical word. Because if we know Jesus, what God has done for us is He has saved us. He saved us from our sins, from the power and the penalty of sin. He saved us from hell. You see, according to the Bible, we're either saved or we're lost. We're either born again or we're spiritually dead. Jesus said we're either on a narrow road that leads to life or we're on a broad road that leads to destruction. We're either headed to heaven or we're headed to hell. We're either a believer or a non-believer. Now, I know that's hard for some people to hear. And it may not be politically correct, but it is biblically correct. It is the truth. And I, and I think it helps us to understand what it really means to be saved. Now, in our story this morning, we have a clear picture of God's way of salvation. First, we see true repentance. You know, repentance is the first step anyone takes towards God. Now, think of this woman. Picture her at the feet of Jesus, weeping, her tears, so humble, wiping his feet with her hair so sorry for her sin, so grateful for his forgiveness. The expensive perfume that she once used to make herself more appealing to men for her trade is now poured out in worship on her Savior's feet, showing not only her love for Jesus, but showing that she wants to leave her life of sin and live a new life for God. That's repentance. It means to change. For some people, it might mean they need to change their mind about God, the way they're thinking about God. It means to turn from sin and to turn to God. It's not easy, but if we're willing, God will help us to, in our repentance. Secondly, we see her faith. Faith in Jesus. Jesus said, your faith has saved you. Notice that it, it wasn't her acts of generosity and love that saved her although they were the proof of her true repentance and faith. No, it's God's grace through faith in Jesus that saves us. The woman's act of love was just a demonstration of her true faith, and Jesus honored her faith. 
But here's the question. What was it the woman believed by faith? What did she believe that saved her? I believe that she believed if she came to Jesus, the friend of sinners, Jesus would not send her away. She came as a sinner believing Jesus wouldn't send her away, and she was right. Of all those who came to Simon's house, only that woman is said to have left forgiven. And I believe this woman's love for Jesus began when he first showed love to her. You know, that's the way it always works. We love because he first loved us. And when we come to realize the love that was poured out for us on the cross, when we come to realize that it was our sin that put Jesus on that cross, our sin that drove the nails through his hands and feet, when we come to realize that and we come to him in repentance and faith and experience his forgiveness, his love, his mercy and grace, it generates a love within us for him. You see, we're either like Simon or we're like this woman. Either we're indifferent and care little for Jesus because we don't really realize just how serious our sin is. We don't realize how huge our sin debt really is and we've never experienced the wonder of God's forgiveness and love. Or we're like the woman who understood that her case was hopeless and her life was empty and miserable and that hell was her final destination and we're filled with love for Jesus because he saved us. This morning, if our love for Jesus is not what it should be, if we have in any way forsaken our first love, if there was ever a time when we loved him more than we do now, if in any way we don't love him as we did at first, then let's really think about what great lengths he went to so that we could be forgiven. Let's take a long look at the cross where Jesus gave everything for us. And let's be reminded that he's worthy of our very lives as well. He's worthy. And that he deserves to be first place in everything. You see, when we really see Jesus on that cross, there's only one natural response. An overflowing love for him. Overflowing gratitude. Overflowing love that's seen in us by a pure and sincere devotion to Him. An overflowing love that manifests itself in daily Bible reading and prayer so that we might know Him more and more and have a true relationship with Him. An overflowing love that's seen by a desire in us to make Him known to sinners who need a friend in Jesus. Now, as we close, Jesus told this woman, go in peace. Go in peace. And I want to ask you this morning, do you have that peace? Do you have peace with God? Do you have the peace of knowing that your sins are forgiven? The peace of knowing that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? Do you have that peace? Because you see, if you don't, you can right now this morning you say what would I have to do the same thing the woman did come humbly to Jesus Christ confessing your sin repenting of your sin and then look to the cross where he died for you for your sin and ask him to come into your heart 
and into your life. If you're not sure that you've ever done that, if you're not sure that you've ever really called on the name of the Lord to save you, I'm going to ask you to do that tonight, if that's your, right now today, if that's your heart's desire. And you can do it right now as we close in prayer. And I'm going to, I'm just going to say a simple prayer. And if you pray that prayer from your heart, God will hear it. He has promised that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you come to him, he won't send you away. He will hear your prayer. So let's pray. Father, if there's someone here, it might just be one person, and they don't have that peace with you. Because they can't say for sure, I know my sins are forgiven. I know if I die today, I know I'm going to heaven. But they'd like to have that peace. Would you help them right now to believe in you? To put their faith in Jesus Christ? Would you help them to come to you as this woman did? Would you help them just to pray this simple prayer right now from their heart? Oh God, I know that I'm a sinner. Please be merciful to me, a sinner. But Jesus, I believe you're the Savior who loved me and died for my sins and who rose again from the dead. And I want you to forgive my sin. I want you to come into my heart and life and make me the person you want me to be. I want you to be the leader of my life. I want to commit my life to you. In Jesus' name. And Lord, right now, I ask that you'd help every one of us to see you on that cross. And might it generate a deeper love in each one of our hearts for you that manifests itself in obedience to you. You said you are my friends if you obey my commands. Might it be a love that causes us to repent of any sin that might be in our life right now? Might it be a love that would cause us to want to know you more and more and to make you known to a lost and hurting world? Might it may be a love that, that causes us to put you first in everything we do and a total commitment and surrender to you? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.